Well, we count it as a, as a rich, rich honor to be here today. Uh, we've known of your church for many years. I think perhaps I heard the stories when the church began that there was a church starting up in Kingsburg. And uh, so we've appreciated the work that God has done here for years. Uh, then we began praying against your church when we heard that you were trying to bring our grandchildren um, all the way from Texas to California. And uh, one thing we can say about Pastor Scott, I think there's a word that, that you could just use to define Pastor Scott. Is he's just tenacious. He just doesn't let go. And uh, though we uh, prayed and lobbied against this decision, uh, once it was clear that this was God's good purposes for our family, we... Uh, with kind of heavy hearts, we kind of let let the let them go and bless them as they moved uh, from Texas here, and uh, we thank you for caring for them so well. Uh, get used to seeing us because as long as the grandkids are here, we're going to come as often as we can. And um, but it's a great honor and privilege to be able to share the word today. And I appreciate Pastor Scott and uh, Pastor David and um, Blake and also the elders for this honor. Uh, and it, I do count it as an honor. Anytime you stand with the Word of God in your hand, and you're going to speak for God, that's an honor. But then to have a church that loves the preaching of the Word of God and uh, is serious about what God is doing, uh, that's a, a double honor. And so uh, thank you so much for this uh, opportunity today. Um, I wonder if we could gather our hearts together once more just quickly as we humble ourselves and ask God's Spirit to teach us. Uh, Father, uh, we pray that your Spirit will use this time in powerful ways, that the name and work and glory of Jesus will be lifted high, and that we might not just be merely informed about what Jesus would have us do and be, but that our hearts would really be transformed through the work of the Spirit as a result of our humbling ourselves under your word today. In Jesus' name we ask these things, amen. I think from time to time it's important for us, those of us who are serious about following Jesus, to to be refreshed and to be reminded and maybe to be challenged again about our job description well, what it means to follow Jesus. If you're in business, if you work for a company or a corporation, you've probably had that painful experience of being put in a room and, and with a whiteboard, and you're going to craft your mission statement. You're going to craft your job description. You're going you're to talk about why you exist as a company. Some people love that. For me, it's like a root canal, mission statement meeting, I'll go to the root canal most any time. But uh, that's what some people, it's important to do in work and in corporations to have a sense of who we are and therefore what we're to do. And in our text that we're choosing today in the book of Luke chapter 12, if you'd like to open your Bibles there, uh, we'll just stay there for the entire time. But in Luke chapter 12, you have a sense of a, of a mission statement. You have a sense of Jesus giving his followers information about who they are and as a result of that, how they're to live and what they're to do and how, do they're, how they're to carry about their lives. It, it might be more appropriate than using the, the metaphor of a mission statement. It might be more appropriate to talk about this as a as, as an assignment, a mission briefing for Navy SEALs, because that's really what we're called to be. When you read this text today, it's a humbling text. It's a text that if you read it with honesty, and if you really try to apply it, uh, your immediate response is, how can I live up to that? How, how can I possibly be what Jesus has called me to be? How can I possibly do what Jesus is calling me to do? Well, and that's a great place to be, because when you find yourself in that place, you find yourself in desire and in need of the working of the Holy Spirit. And so if I could do this this morning, let me, let me act as though I'm giving you a briefing and you're a bunch of commandos. You're a bunch of Navy SEALs and you are getting ready for a mission. And it's a mission that's really serious. It's, a, it's mission critical. It, it, the implications of it are not just for time, but the implications are for eternity. 
That makes it important. And so keep that in your mind as we look at the text this morning. Uh, I'm preaching through Luke in our church family. I know you've uh, just started a study through the uh, Gospel of John. Uh, In this specific part of Luke, Luke is very uh, intentional, as all of the Scripture writers were. He's intentional about the way he has presented the the life and account of Jesus. And so beginning somewhere in about chapter 9, there's a turning in the book of Luke where it says that Jesus now sets his face toward Jerusalem. And it's a very specific phrase. And what you begin to see is immediately there's a ratcheting up of the tension. Immediately the opposition to Jesus, and if you'll think about this, this is opposition that should never have been there. This is opposition from the religious leaders. This is opposition from people who, to put it in our terms, they knew their Old Testament. And if they knew their Old Testament, they should have recognized that everything Jesus did as he went about accomplishing his life and work, everything matched what the Older Testament told us the Messiah would look like. And the religious leaders of Israel should have recognized this. But what Luke and the other gospel writers make clear is that that there is this growing opposition and this resistance. And the more that Jesus teaches and the more confrontive Jesus gets, especially toward false leaders, the more the resistance heightens and the more the opposition grows. And so what Jesus does here at the end of chapter 12 is in the middle of teaching both the disciples and then the hangers-on. Because if we understand the context well, Jesus is talking to his followers, his 12 and perhaps others, but then there were the multitudes that surrounding them, and included in the multitudes were the opposers, were the opposition party. And yet what Jesus does here is he basically he sets a mission briefing out. If we wanted to be colloquial about it, we could say Jesus is looking at his Navy SEALs and he's saying, you've got to understand what you're about. You have, to understand, you have to understand what to expect, you have to understand why to expect it, and you have to understand when to expect it. And that's what we find in the text. And it's no different for us than it was for them. So in Luke chapter 12, the first thing I want you to see that Jesus talks about and that I want us to recognize in the text today is that, is that we should recognize about Jesus and his mission. About Jesus and his mission, we should recognize what Jesus says. So follow along as I read. I'm going to be in verses 49 and 50 of Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, beginning in verse 49. And here's Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, that's easy to understand, isn't it? Don't you hear those words? Did you know where to go with that? Not for me. And even as I prepared this message, I looked at this and I thought, what is Jesus really getting at here? What, what is he wanting his hearers to understand? Why does he say what he says? Why does he talk about a fire that's coming to earth and he wishes the fire, had already, it, he wishes the fire were already blazing? Why does he talk about a baptism and he says, oh, how I wish, how I wish that it was already accomplished? What's Jesus getting at? Well, think about these two images. The first image he uses is fire. It's, it's implying without doubt the fire of judgment. The Gospel of Luke has already recorded Jesus talking about this, the, the idea that, that the chaff would burn with unquenchable fire. And Jesus is essentially saying, listen, you've heard about the judgment of God. You know the God of Israel in his holiness is a fearful power, a fearful force. Later on, the writer of Hebrews would say, it's a terrible, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God because he's an unquenchable fire. 
So with fire, there was this sense of judgment. Judgment brought up images of fire, of, 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 of the wrath of God. Immediately, these Jews, their thoughts would have turned to Sodom and Gomorrah, where fire rained down from heaven because of sin and judgment. And so when Jesus uses this fire imagery, he, he says, and I wish it was already kindled. And you read that and you think, well, here's what's going on. Jesus is just looking around and he sees how wicked all the hearts is. And he's saying, I wish God's fire would just fall on all of you. Is that really what he's saying? Remember, the disciples had that attitude about a village in Samaria. This is a couple of chapters earlier here in Luke, where a village in Samaria had resisted Jesus' ministry. And the disciples said, you know, here's what we ought to do. Let's pray to the Father that, just God will, that, that, that here's Sodom and Gomorrah, part two, just that rain down judgment on those villages. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. And when Jesus says this, it would lead us to think that Jesus is finally fed up because of this opposition. And he's saying, there's going to be fire. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. But here's what Jesus is getting at. And we know this because of what he says in the next verse as well. When Jesus talks about fire, here's his attitude. He knows that fire is coming. It's the fire that's appropriately coming from God the Father against unbelief and rejection. But you know what Jesus is implying? We know it now. We understand a bit of it from the next verse that he talks about, and the, the words in the next verse. And we now know because of the end of the, end of the story that Jesus is saying, yes, there's fire coming, but I'll bear the fire. Yes, there's fire coming, but the fire will come on me. That I'll bear the judgment. Because look at the next metaphor. The next metaphor is this metaphor of baptism. In verse number 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Uh, uh, the concept of baptism, it, it obviously has to do with water, but it has to do with being uninundated with water, of being overwhelmed with water. This is the way the word was used in the ancient language of a, of a boat that was, was overwhelmed with water. Of, of, and so we still use this phrase today. It's the same phrase that Jesus uses. We talk about a politician who gets elected to office and immediately they experience trouble and conflict and they're going through a baptism of fire. We use this concept. We blend really these two metaphors together. A baptism is, is the idea of being overwhelmed and what Jesus was anticipating by, by figure was this catastrophe that he would experience, that he was going to be uniquely inundated with God's judgment. He would be rejected. He would be persecuted. He would be violently executed. What Kent Hughes calls the artful butchery and prolonged torture of the cross. This is what Jesus had in front of him. This, when Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, he recognized that this is what he was signing up for. He knew it all along. He knew it from eternity past. He knew exactly what would happen and yet he was willing to embrace it. And so when he talks about his baptism, it's a baptism, if I could mix the metaphors, it's a baptism of fire. It's a baptism of judgment. It's a baptism of suffering. And it's fascinating because what you have here is you have a glimpse into the, this unique mystery between the divine nature of Jesus and his human nature, which was fully human but without sin. And if I can say it this way, I think you get a sense here without any sin, without any disobedience, I think you get a sense here of impatience on the part of the Son of God. I think Jesus knows what he's going to have to experience. He knows the pain, the suffering, and not just the physical pain and suffering. As important and as real as that was, it was far more the, the spiritual suffering where the Bible says that he would take our sins and bear our sins upon his holy being. And Jesus essentially was saying, if we could just get this over with, if the fire of judgment would go ahead and fall, if this baptism, if we could go ahead, I, I wish it's as though I wish it were already over, Jesus is saying. 
It's even more than the physical suffering. You know, in ancient times, and especially in the Scripture, and it should probably be this way today, people would value a blessing, but they would be terrified of a curse. It was a very serious thing to curse someone. You were essentially asking the deity to bring down cursing and judgment and disaster upon someone if you would curse them. On the other hand, if you would bless them, you, would, you were asking for a well-being and blessing to come. And the Bible teaches us that when Jesus hung up on the cross, he became a curse for us. We sang about this, that he took the curse upon himself. Now, very clearly, very simply, what am I suggesting? I'm saying that what Jesus is telling his followers and what he's telling us is that regarding his mission, regarding why he came to earth, his earthly existence, his earthly life and work, he was essentially saying this, there is no boundary to my love for you. There is no boundary to this love. I don't just talk about love. I don't just try to demonstrate love in incidental ways. I'm willing to go through a baptism of judgment. I'm willing to go into the fire for you. I, as the holy Lamb of God, I am willing to bear your guilt. I'm willing to become the curse that you deserve to be. This is the depth of my love. It was important for his followers to hear that. It was important for them to know that. And he, it bore upon him. It wore upon him. So as he sets his face to Jerusalem, and as he heads through his earthly ministry, he knows what's to happen in Jerusalem. And he knows the, the incredible, awesome pain of it. And you can go and read in the same author, in Luke 22, you can go read about Jesus' uh, anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. One author said many years ago that essentially what you have all through this passage in Luke is you have Jesus engaging in a perpetual Gethsemane. He knows what's happening. He knows the weight of it. He knows what it will be to become the curse of his Father. And yet he's willing to do that because he loves people like us. He was wholly devoted to our deliverance. And he wanted these followers of his to know that. He wants us to know it as well. That Jesus was so consumed with mercy and with love and a willingness to dispense grace to us that he was willing to become, although he was the definition of blessing, he was willing to become a curse on our behalf. And this is how much God loves you. This is the depth of of Jesus' love for us. And the mystery of it is that Jesus still remains a man. He's still human. He's still our brother. And in heaven, he continues to intercede for us. He is still concerned for our deliverance. This has been the burden of his life. This has been the burden of his existence, since, especially since he assumed humanity, is that he would deliver his own. And so he bore our guilt. He took the wrath of God. He continues to care for us. He intercedes for us. And one day he will bring us home. This is the depth of Jesus' love for you. And this should be what motivates us. This should be what wakes us up and keeps us going every day. This should be what gives us confidence, even though it appears, at least at this time perhaps, that our life is out of control and we wonder about the love of God. If we we look at these words of Jesus as he walked the earth and he talks about the fire that he would take for his own and he talks about the baptism that he would go through of suffering and rejection and curse because of his love for people, it should give us hope that if Jesus was willing to go through that for us, he will surely both care about where we are and he will bring us through. This is the promise that we have as God's people that there is no boundary to this love. 
There's no boundary to this love. We've taken to saying around our place, and I know it sounds scandalous, but it should sound scandalous if we get it right. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. This is the the limitlessness, the, the lack of boundaries on the love that Jesus has for his own. And do you sense that? Do you live in that? If you're going to go into mission, if you're going to live your life on mission, you need to have a a, a grasp of the infinite love that Jesus has for his own. And I fear sometimes we, we distance ourselves from it because all of us recognize, nearly all of us at least in here, recognize that there are churches that overemphasize God's love and they never talk about his holiness and judgment. And, and we all know that. And so sometimes it backs us into a corner to where we're almost embarrassed to talk about how much God loves us. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You need to know this. I'll bear the fire. I'll go through the baptism of suffering. I'll become a curse. That's how much I love you. There's no boundary to this love. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like really good news to me. And so you would think that that Jesus was basically saying, this is the depth I'm going to go through for you. I'm going to go through the fire. I'm going to go through this baptism of suffering so that everything's going to be set right. But then look at his next words. Look at what he says in verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Now stop right there. That's a rhetorical question. And what's the answer to that? I mean, what's the answer to that? The answer, surely, if you're a Jew and Jesus is the Messiah and he's just told you he's going to go through this on your behalf, what's your answer to that? The answer is surely yes. Yeah, you're the Prince of Peace. You're, you're, you, you bring the shalom of God, the well-being, the peacefulness, the, the blessedness of God. Surely now there's going to be peace on earth. And Jesus says, No. Verse 51, no, I tell you, but rather division. And here we need to recognize what Jesus wants us to know about about him and our world even today. Notice what he says. He says in verse 52, for from now on, in other words, as a result of me, as a result of what I'm doing, who I am, from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Messiah's goal was to to bring peace, but not immediately. In fact, before the peace comes, there will be more suffering. There will be more pain. There will be more conflict. I don't don't know if you can grasp, if, if you have friends who are Jewish or maybe you have Jewish roots, maybe you have some sense of what an incredibly radical thing this was for Jesus to say. Because in this kind of culture, family identity and family unity, it was a huge issue. It, it, it was, I mean, you could count on your family. You, you were dependent upon your family. You describe yourself as who you were the son of. And, and for Jesus to say, no, I, I'm the deliverer of God. I'm the Messiah. Here's my ministry. But the result of my ministry is going to be division, even division in households. It was stunning news. But we have to recognize it. Jesus is warning his followers, don't expect this tension, this skepticism, this resistance to stop. The the disciples were likely shell-shocked. Because for all of the talk that we give about the Pharisees, and we all use Pharisee in such a negative terminology, in the time of Jesus, the popular perception of Pharisee is you didn't really get much holier than Pharisees. And so the, the, the disciples undoubtedly were continually trying to figure out why aren't the religious leaders, the, the party of the Pharisees, the scribes, why, why isn't the Sanhedrin, why haven't they embraced Jesus? 
And Jesus says, no, here's what they're going to do. There's going to be ongoing division. In other places, he acknowledges that he'll be killed, and that was a hard truth for them to hear as well. And what Jesus wanted them to know and what Jesus would want us to know is that peace at any price is not a value of Jesus' kingdom. Peace at any price, it's not a value of Jesus' kingdom because Jesus essentially says this. He says, I am the dividing line. I am the dividing line. People fall either on one side or the other. They either acknowledge who I am and what I am doing for them and what I have accomplished, and they are followers of mine, or they reject. They're on the outside. And this is the source of division. Now, I know that you know there have been many Jesuses in history and philosophy, Jesuses in air quotes, right? There has been the wise sage Jesus. There's been the religious genius Jesus. There's been the social revolutionary Jesus. The idea of Jesus, his his name and his identity, it, it has been refashioned and envisioned to fit really almost any religious or, again, air quote, spiritual mold. The idea that Jesus was just this wonderful teacher. Jesus was a great example. Jesus came just to, to, to show us love. But the words of Jesus are a little more definite than that. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the dividing line. And as a result of that, there will be division. And we have to be very careful about this. There's no sense of triumphalism in this. There's, there's, sometimes as believers, we come to this and we think, yeah, that's the way it is. Jesus is the only way. Preach it. And yet the reality is it ought to break our hearts. It, 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 it ought to sober us. It ought to weight us down with a sense of burden and a sense of responsibility. And that's what Jesus wants his disciples to know. That's what Jesus wants us to know. That listen, listen, there's no end to this tension. That's the lesson we get about Jesus in our world. The lesson we end up with is there's no end to this tension. It began when Jesus walked the earth. It continues today. And it's a dividing line that goes straight through cultures. It goes straight through government. It goes straight through education. It goes straight through religion, so-called, and into every family home. What will you do with Jesus? It's a tension that will never go away, at least in this lifetime. At least until he returns. It will never ultimately go away until finally he ultimately rules and reigns and we are in his kingdom. There is no end to this tension. Why is it this way? Because the people around you, they have a preference for darkness over light. And don't you get this? Don't you see this? It's okay to be spiritual, quote unquote, as long as you leave Jesus out of it. You know, you can believe anything you want. You can do anything you want. You can have any faith that you want. But don't talk about Jesus. Don't talk about Jesus' death. Don't talk about the power of his resurrection. Don't talk about the miraculous demonstration of power that Jesus manifested throughout his ministry. No, to insist on Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life is both intolerant and arrogant. In fact, it's concluded to be ignorant. And that's just the way it is. But listen, don't misunderstand me this morning. That is the way it is. That is the way it is. We, what, what do we expect? What do we expect when people don't follow Jesus? What do we expect about the conclusion they make about those of us that do? What is Jesus saying here? There's going to be division. There's going to be tension. I, I have this fear that especially in contemporary America, those of us that follow Jesus, we've been really spoiled. I think we've been really spoiled. And I, I mean spoiled in both senses of the term. 
we, we use the term spoiled when you talk about kids that have everything they always want, they always get their way, and their behavior is atrocious, and we say those kids are spoiled kids, right? And I wonder if that's not the case with us, because in the history specifically of our country, in the history of America, we've really had it pretty good. There's been this civic acknowledgement of religion and morality, and we've never really been persecuted because we follow Jesus, and, 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 and there's been civic acknowledgement, at least in generations past, of the Bible as being a worthy book and even, even a powerful book. Sometimes people even thought a supernatural book. So we've lived in this culture where we've really had it fairly easy, and I wonder if it hasn't spoiled us to where we think that's what life ought to be. Nobody ought to ever give us a hard time about following Jesus. After all, we're Americans. I think we're spoiled. You know, the other thing that happens when something spoils, I know a lot of you know about this, what happens when fruit spoils, it starts to stink, doesn't it? And I wonder if we don't sometimes stink with our attitude, with the way that we look around, with the way that we think about, about the so-called persecution that we have in our country today. And I wonder if, if our attitudes are not only obnoxious in the eyes and the minds and in the noses of the people around us, but I wonder even in our, the nose of our God. I mean, it, if you'll allow me, Jesus, if he were standing here today, he'd say, I told you so. Did you really think the culture would always agree? Did you really think people would always affirm what you followed, what you believed? No. If you really follow me, there'll be division. There's a problem today with thin-skinned Christians. In case any of you misunderstand, I, I don't have any problem as a citizen uh, advocating for righteousness, advocating for freedom, freedom of religion, all of that I think is appropriate, and I'm concerned about those areas. What I'm, what I'm also concerned about, far, far more concerned about, is when we tie the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a political movement to where the gospel becomes just another option, and when Jesus basically says, listen, don't expect government to ever do the work of the kingdom. Don't expect people to ever get to the place where they stand up and applaud the gospel of Jesus. It won't happen. There's going to be division. And we become so thin-skinned, we think it's the end of the world. One preacher, thinking about this, said this, Remember that our Bible is a blood-stained book. The blood of martyrs is on the Bible. The blood of translators and confessors. The doctrines which we preach to you are doctrines that have been baptized in blood. Swords have been drawn to slay the confessors of them. And there is not a truth which has not been sealed by them at the stake or on the block or far away on the lofty mountains where they have been slain by the thousands. It is but a little duty we have to discharge compared to theirs. They were called to maintain the truth when, when they had to die for it. You only have been have to maintain the truth when taunt and jeer, ignominious names and contemptuous epithets are all you have had to endure. What? Do you expect easy lives? While some have sailed through seas of blood and have fought to win the prize, are you wearied with a slight skirmish on dry land? What would you do if God should allow persecuting days to overtake you? O craven spirits, ye would flee away and disown your profession." But ye, the pillar and ground of the truth, be ye that pillar and ground of the truth. Let the blood of the martyrs, let the voices of confessors speak to you. Remember how they held fast the truth, how they preserved, persevered it, and and handed it down to others from generation to generation. And by their noble example, I beseech you, be steadfast and faithful. Tread valiantly and firmly in their steps. Acquit yourselves like men, like men of God, I implore you. So said Charles Spurgeon 150 years ago. 
talking about Christians that bemoan their status in a world that didn't love Jesus. You know what I think we should say to ourselves? We should just get over ourselves. We should just get over ourselves. We should recognize following Jesus means there'll be division. Following Jesus, we won't likely be the most popular guy in the crowd. That, that we won't popularly be the, the most popular girl in the school if you're a student. But following Jesus is worth it. Following Jesus is all that there is. And Jesus, who loved us with this depth of love, a love of which there is no boundary, he also says, recognize this fact, there's no end to this tension. There's no end to this tension. And so what we should do is we should love Jesus and love sinners. Now, I recognize as I say these words, this is, these are very, the words that Jesus uses here are very personal to some of you because you don't have a family like we've been blessed to have where generally all the people follow Jesus. Many of your families are described here, five against six, three against two, father against son, daughter against mother. Many of your families are like that. And our call is not to scream at them, not to preach at them, not to marginalize them, but our call is to recognize that that instead of, instead of calling us to a life that is comfortable and holy, Jesus is calling us to a life that is loving and faithful. And especially where we are pressed in with people who are on the other side of the dividing line. He is the dividing line. They're on the other side of the dividing line. We're to love them the way he loved them. We're to tell them the truth the way he told them the truth. We're to be patient with them as he was patient with them. We're to show them the love that he showed. But make no mistake. There's no end to this tension. There's one more category that Jesus addresses in Luke 12. Look at your Bibles again, please. Because he talks about Jesus. He talks about himself and our choices. He talks about our choices. Notice he turns to the crowds in verse 54. He said also to the crowds, very specifically, now he's, he's broadening out, not just talking to his followers, but now he's going to talk to the multitudes. And the multitudes in the context included those that were opposing him, those that were already plotting against him. All right, notice what he says. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower's coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Verse 58. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Listen, Jesus is briefing us for our mission, and he's telling us that there's no boundary to his love, and he's telling us that there's no end to this tension. And the third thing he's telling us is that there's no limit to this urgency. This is important. This is not something you can just ignore. He uses two images. The first image is this, this great kind of withering, sarcastic, ironic kind of, of, of challenge about the weather watching. They were all meteorologists in their day. They'd gotten to where they could recognize when rain was coming. They knew if the wind started coming out of the south, it was going to be the Santa Anas, right? They recognized. And do you have Santa Anas this far north? I don't. Maybe you don't. But anyway, they, they could recognize the weather. And he said, you, you're good at that, but you've got evidence right in front of you that you're ignoring. When I thought about this text, it, it made me th- think about how all of us 
all of us are meteorologists with our weather apps, you know, and we're all checking our weather. We had an event last weekend, and, and the guy that was organizing the event, he said, all day I was just I was looking at my weather. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what are you going to do about it? Well, whatever you find, you're powerless to do anything about it. It's just more information. There's nothing to do. And yet Jesus is saying, in a sense, the same thing to these people. You, you, you know the weather, but you look around you look around at the signs that are right in front of you. And by the way, these were the same people, many of them, who had been asking for cosmic signs. Jesus talks about that several times, that they want to see a sign in the heavens. And Jesus said, you can look and you can see the signs of the weather, but right here you can't see right in front of you. And by implication, what he's saying is my ministry, who I am. You're looking and you're watching, and yet you're clueless. You refuse to acknowledge and there's responsibility. Notice in verse 57, he assumes that they are able to make a judgment for themselves. Their spiritual blindness, as serious as it is, watch this, those of you who are theologians, it doesn't remove their responsibility. They have an opportunity to hear. They have an opportunity to believe. He says in 57, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? That's Jesus' way of summarizing Romans 1, which says that everything that can be known about God in creation makes people who can see it responsible. This is what Jesus is saying. And he's saying that there's an urgency about it. And these people who, who should have recognized the obvious, they were purposely oblivious to the evidence. They didn't care. They weren't willing to submit. They weren't willing to believe. And Jesus' words here are pretty serious. And usually he, he, he reserves his stern language for religious leaders and for false prophets. And generally with the crowds, he's very patient and he's very compassionate and very loving. But here in a mixed crowd, he calls everybody to the responsibility of recognizing these are urgent matters. And we get the urgency from the, the second image that he presents, beginning in verse 58, which is basically a parable. And it's a parable about the debtor's prisons of the time. Now, here's what would happen in ancient times. If you had a debt and you'd been pressed to pay the debt and you couldn't pay the debt, the solution was they're going to put you in prison. Now, that sounds so counterintuitive to us, doesn't it? It's like once you're in prison, how are you going to pay the debt? But there was, the expectation was your family, those who cared about you, would get serious about gathering up the money, paying off the debt, and getting you out of prison. Now, here's what Jesus, look at it again. His, his primary point is the urgency of it. Get this thing taken care of now. Do you see what he says? He says, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make every effort to settle with him on the way. When Jesus is talking about this, this has nothing to do with his, his similar parable in Matthew 5 about making things right with a brother. This, he's not talking about that at all. He's talking about the urgency of the matters of life and death, of eternity. He's saying, sooner or later, you're going to get called before the court, and you better make sure the books are settled. You better make sure you've cleared the books. Again, if you were studying along in Luke, you would know that he's been talking about the unexpectedness. He talked about the rich farmer who had so many things, and he said, I'm just going to build more and more barns. And what does God say to him? He says, you're a fool because tonight your soul is required of you. And then Jesus goes on, and he talks about the fact that there's a master who's coming home, and you don't know when he's coming home. You better be prepared if you're a servant. And then he talks about the fact that nobody knows when a thief is coming because if you know when a thief is coming, you lock up the doors and you protect yourself against it. There's a theme of unexpectedness here. And so when Jesus gives this parable about being called before the court with threat of being thrown into prison, you better make sure you clear the books. You better make sure you settle the debts. You better make sure you're in a right place because you never know when that will happen. And here's the concern Jesus has because if you get thrown in God's debtor prison, you'll never get out. And it's not an issue of eternality necessarily, although that's surely true. It's an issue of the fact that the reason you're there is because you'll never be able to pay every one of your debts. 
And by the way, that's a great argument for eternal separation, eternal hell. You know, a lot of people today have trouble with that. Why a loving God would send someone and suffer to hell in hell eternally is because the loving God is also an infinitely holy God that we have offended with our sins, and that offense is against an infinite holiness. And the implication is you can never pay the whole debt. This is what Jesus says. In the context of unexpectedness, it's coming sooner or later. You better be ready. Sin is considered a debt, Romans chapter 3. Forgiveness is the idea of being released. But the point that Jesus is making here is that there is an urgency to it. And do business with God. Do business with God now. And especially if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. If you're on the other side of the dividing line, you've held on to your pride, you've held on to your sin, Jesus would say to you, do business with the Father today. Clear the books today. And the only way you can clear the books, you have no bank account, you have no good efforts, you have no good intentions that are deep enough, infinite enough, worthy enough to make God happy with you. The only way you can clear your books is by throwing yourself on the mercy of the court and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. This is the promise to you, but it's a challenge and a warning to you as well because what Jesus would say is it's an urgent matter because you could get pulled before the court any day. But there's a lesson here for us as well, because these are eternal matters. We deal in matters of eternity. We act as though though that the things that matter are our own comfort. I I mean, the things we get upset about, the things we vest our energy in, the things we get our emotions all riled up about, the things that, 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 that... where, where we cause division, sometimes division even among other brothers and sisters in the church. All of these things which in and of themselves might be minor or might even be valid in and of themselves. But it's as though Jesus looks down and he says, what are you doing? There's an urgency. And the urgency has to do with eternity. And you're just coasting through life. You're getting agitated about things that are only temporal. Get busy. If you're lost, settle accounts with the Father. If you're saved, recognize that the the matter that you're engaged in, the mission that God has set you on, is rooted in the infinite love of the Savior. It will never end as long as you're in this world because there's this tension and recognize that it's an urgent mission. It's mission critical. You better get it done. There's an old preacher story. It's the only way I know how to say it. It's a preacher story about a demon council in hell after Jesus had died and resurrected. And basically they came together and they said, what are we going to do now? And this one old demon raises his hand and he says, I know what we'll do. We'll tell everybody that there's, there's no heaven. And there's no heaven, so there's no reason to think about Jesus. There's no reason to think about who he was or what he did because this life is all there is. The life they have is all there is. And, and that's what we'll tell them. And the demons, you know, they clapped, said, it's a good idea, good idea. And finally, Satan said, no, that one won't work. Because the Creator, our enemy, He has put within the heart of every man a sense of eternity, a a, a sense that goes beyond just this life. There's a desire, in a sense, to live forever. He has created them immortal, as it were, and to tell them there's no heaven won't work. So another demon raises his hand and says, I know what we'll do. Let's tell them there's no hell. Let's tell them they don't have to worry about sin. They don't have to worry about disobedience because a loving God would never punish anyone. And again, there was clapping, a good answer, good answer, and Satan shakes his head and says, that won't work either. Because everybody has this sense of right and wrong. The Creator wrote on their hearts a sense of 
of the law, a sense of, of recognizing when there's guilt and the guilt has to be settled. They're, they recognize that intuitively. The Creator put it within them. It won't work to tell them there's no hell. Finally, the oldest, oldest and the crustiest of the demons stood up and he said, I know what we'll do. It might not work to tell them there's no heaven. And it might not work to tell them there's no hell. Let's just tell them there's no hurry. And you know, that's a fanciful story, but that's what Satan's been doing for years. He just tells people there's no hurry. And some of you, you come even to a church like this and you sing or you hear the singing and you hear the preaching regularly and you know in your heart of hearts that you've never humbled yourself and trusted Jesus because implicitly somewhere along the line you're telling yourself or the demons of hell are telling you there's no hurry. And I would tell you there is. Jesus would say you better settle accounts. You don't know when you'll be called before the court. And for others of us, we've forgotten how serious it is because we've received this incredible grace. Myself, when I was a seven-year-old, I recognized my need of a Savior, and I trusted Him. I was just a little kid. And yet how easy it is for me to forget how urgent it is. There is a hurry. There's a hurry for your family who are divided that Jesus is talking about. There's a hurry for your neighbors. There's a hurry for the people who live in this beautiful community. There's a hurry for the people that God's put in our lives, and He's put us on mission. We have a job to do. These are things that really matter. These are the reasons we exist. These are the reasons your church exists. Because you were unworthy, but Jesus loved you with a boundless love. But there is in this world and even in this community, there's a tension. There's a dividing line, and Jesus is that dividing line. And one day, God will settle the scores. It's a matter of eternity. And this is the reason you're here. If you think this church exists so that you can have a place to bring your kids on Sunday morning and they can have faithful teaching and you can huddle up in the world until Jesus comes, you're missing the reason for the existence of the church because you've been called on mission. And too many of our churches do that. God's going to give you all a great building here in a couple of years. And there's going to be a temptation to think, Now we've got it all. We're settled down. We've got our building. We've got our ministries. We've got the greatest worship pastor in America. We've got got a great preacher. We've got all our ministries, and it's all about us. It's not about you. Jesus would say, no, 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 wait a minute. You're on mission. You're Navy SEALs. All of this is, this is just a training base. This is just a retreat to get healthy, to get trained, to sharpen your skills, because you're going out there where the tension never ends, and people need to hear about the love of the Savior And they need to hear about it because the matter is urgent. The matter is eternal. So that's what Jesus says to his followers. That's what Jesus says to us. There's no boundary to his love. There's no end to this tension. There's no limit to this urgency. You have a takeaway today? Let me give it to you. Get over yourselves. Get over yourselves. Live for Jesus on mission. Live for Jesus on mission. It's a broken world. God's put us here to shine his light, to be salt, to be light, to make a difference. Let's get over ourselves and live on mission for Jesus.